Welcome to Coastal Front. Join us each week as we sit down with the movers and shakers of Vancouver to discuss stories of business, politics, accomplishment, and failure. Our aim is to keep you dialed into what matters most in our city. Now, here's your host, Andrew Johns. All right, here we go. Tom Davidoff, professor, associate professor at the business school, Sauter Business School of UBC. Yep. I think I got that right. Yep, absolutely. Uh, all right, Tom. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Really happy to have you here today. A real pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Uh, you and I have got to know each other uh, over the last couple of years, and we had some great conversation by uh, by way of personal dialogue as well as uh, over Twitter. And um, I, I really support a lot of the thought ideas that you've come up with uh, over the years. I and mean, we actually first met when you and a few other fellow professors wrote that piece, uh, I forget what you call it now. It was the BC Housing Affordability Fund. Yeah, BC. people like funds better than taxes. <laughs> yeah, right. Government should have thought of that. Yeah, and you actually wrote that back before the election. Before it was way back. Uh, was it what twenty fifteen? Was it? Yeah, we we did a piece uh, pretty similar to that. Uh, Sewer Somerville uh, sang Hoon Lee and I wrote a letter to uh, Christy Clark, yeah. uh, who who was in power at the time, and you know she said okay. I mean, she did. I mean, we got the ultimate whatever dudes form letter. And, uh, you know, then I noticed around the block we had David Eby, an MLA, who was the housing critic, who seemed to be very on this outside money in the uh, housing market. So I was expecting the same thing from him, like, you know, whatever. I don't care. I'm an MLA and you're a constituent. So, you know, whatever. But that was really the opposite. I, yeah. You know, we had a meeting and... Uh, so he said, maybe write a white paper, get some other people to sign off on it, and uh, away we went. Yeah, yeah. Now, David's great. And you actually had, after you guys finalized that paper, you had sign-off from a lot of professors at the three major universities in BC, did you not? Yeah, and let's take a step back and talk about what it is. And, uh, you yeah. know, it, 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 the speculation tax, of course, is controversial, but I think the fundamental idea we had was not. So... I did years ago a paper with uh, my old grad school uh, friend, Saku Aura, uh, which we thought was mostly esoteric on property taxes. And we had a hunch that we could say, you know, governments rely on this weird thing, the property tax, a lot, local governments, not federal governments so much, but local governments do. And it's a weird tax because it taxes two things at once at the same rate. And one of them is structures. You know, you build a nice house, every dollar of nice you put in gets taxed. Uh, and that seems kind of questionable because, of course, then you say, well, geez, maybe I don't want to, if I'm going to face high property taxes, maybe I don't want to make such a nice house. And then you're just screwing up people's choices to build homes. On the other hand, taxing the land, you know, since David Ricardo, you know, people talk about Henry George, the economist, but David Ricardo, uh, years, you know, I don't know, 200 years ago, whatever, 300, whatever it was, uh, said, well, wait a second, you know, land, that's free money because, you know, you can't, you can't make the land any worse. So... You know, it's weird to tax the two at the same rate. That's the convention. So then we just had a conjecture, which probably should have been easier to prove for us than, than it was for us coming out of grad school, which was uh, markets where it's harder to add building and where land is a bigger part of value should be the markets where you have higher property taxes. And so uh, I always thought, you know, when I got to Vancouver, I was like, I think things are a little out of whack here. I think we ought to have higher property taxes, lower other taxes, because a lot of the values land. And, you know, relative to the states, Canada, you know, for probably and some just, good sorry, reasons. Just for yep. reference, Tom, when was it you came to Vancouver? I came to Vancouver in 2009. 2009. You know, so yeah. it's funny, because I got here, 
uh, when I was sort of on the job market. And I was like, you know, this is a quiet, mellow place. Everybody's been very interested in housing in the States. Maybe that's gotten in the way of my research productivity because I've been all interested in policy. I'm going to get here, peaceful, sleepy town, locking myself in an office, do esoteric research nobody cares about. You know, it's okay. I'll be out of the limelight <laughs> and uh, do research. And it, it turned out to be very different. Anyway, uh, you know, so the idea what I've always had was, well, you should raise property taxes, cut income and sales taxes. But that's a non-starter. I mean, you can't go to a, any legislator who can win an election knows that that's a total loser. Um, <laughs> the voting is dominated by homeowners north of 55. And if you're a homeowner, you know, north of 55, you've paid off the house by working all your life. A cut in the income tax does you a little bit of good for a short time. A property tax is a double whammy because yeah, it uh, kills your property value and it's money out of your pocket. So you're never going to get a majority of the electorate uh, on, on a giant tax reform that changes the rules of the game when people are midstream. But then we start reading about uh, E.B. and Kathy Tomlinson, the Globe reporter, going after this idea of empty homes, that there's money coming in from outside. And I said, wait a second, here's an opportunity to sort of kill two birds with one stone. So people are freaked out that locals are getting priced out. And maybe we can do tax reform this way. So the natural thought was, well, if you live and work here, okay, fine, I don't like the property tax system, but you're an incumbent, you're working here, you're paying taxes, you get to play by the old set of rules. But if you're going to buy a property here and not be part of the high income taxes, well, you know, you're going to have to cough up higher property taxes. So you get a step in the direction of a better tax system, and you handle this issue of outside money. And so it's that rare case where you change taxes in a way that makes things more efficient, you have a better, more dynamic economy because you're taking the tax burden off making a living and doing stuff, and you're shifting it to owning property in Vancouver, which everybody wants mm -hmm. to do anyway with or without a tax. You're just going to change the price. So you're both shifting resources from people who are mostly affluent towards those who are not. But that usually screws up the economy. Here we have a case where you actually make, probably make the economy better and more dynamic. So I think that was a almost a no-brainer, that one, uh, for most economists. And that's why we were able to get so much support uh, from the UBC and uh, Simon Fraser uh, yeah. economists. And when you guys completed that housing affordability fund, is what you call yeah, it, yeah. Um, if I recall, uh, you, you actually got invited over to Victoria to present this, did you not, to, the, to, yeah, the, to, yeah. to Christy Clark's government? At the yeah, time? I think there was some support. I, I think they were they knew they had to do something. And yeah. by 15, 16, things were getting so nutty. They were. And and that was the election. I mean, I th and I think they saw the election coming. They said, we have to do something. Yeah. And I think there were mu probably multiple uh, prior, uh, ideas on the table. And I think they went, went with the simplest one. What I just described the is a little complicated. One, yeah, the simplest one was, what you, just to be sure, what you're talking about, it was the foreign home buyers. That's tax. right. Let me see your passport. Uh, yeah. Canadian, fine, good. PR, good. Uh, uh, nope, not you. Yeah. That's a Chinese passport. That's an American passport. Yeah. Not the same. So uh, you're going to pay the tax. That's very easy to implement. Because I remember David and I having a pretty lengthy conversation about this and saying, like, this doesn't at all really address the issue. And in fact... It had some really negative consequences uh, in a sense in the sense of you had people maybe like yourself who weren't residents of Canada you know talented professors coming from say the United States to come live here and you bought a place and all of a sudden you're getting hit with a I think at the time 20 was it 20 percent or 15 percent yeah I think uh, we did have even a solder yeah. professor who, yeah. who might have got they subsequently took it off for work permit yeah but then you get away from the simplicity that's right right you have this blunt instrument 
and mm. you're going to have type one and type two errors. You're going to yeah. tax people who shouldn't get taxed, and you're going to not tax people who should get taxed. So then you start messing with the foreign buyer tax. You say, oh, we'll allow work permit. But then the beautiful simplicity is gone. Gone. And, and so, so if you're going to have something more complex, make it better anyways. I mean, the way I see it is my big criticism that from the start was that, well, what happens to all the people who bought a house that were foreign buyers the year before or yeah. the year before that or the year before that? You know, they, they, they're they exempt from that tax. And so they can sit there with an empty home. That's why I, I've always been very supportive of your guys' uh, your guys's affordability fund. I just, I read it. It made so much sense. Um, I, I am a little bit disappointed. I'll, I'll speak my own yep. view here, but I'm a little disappointed at the way that they've rolled out the speculation tax. There's There's been some real major errors. Uh, you know, like the residents of, uh, of Belcara are, yep. are getting hit yep. hard. Uh, yep. and I talked to Neil Belenke, uh, who's the mayor there. Um, we're going to hope hopefully have him on the show talk about that. Uh, and also the other thing that I, I'm personally frustrated with is that there's there's got to be, I don't know anybody personally, but there's got to be people who are affected that have been longtime taxpayers here in Canada, probably affluent, but they've paid their fair share of taxes, if not more. Yet they might have a house in uh, in West Vancouver, West Side Vancouver, with a condo downtown that they like to use for mm. social engagements, whatever it might be, or they have a place over on Vancouver Island, maybe in Nanaimo or in Kelowna. Uh, there actually there are there are definitely people who have a summer house in Kelowna, yep. and they have a, a home in Vancouver, and they've paid years of taxes, and now they're getting hit with this this massive tax because they they either have to rent out their place in Kelowna, uh, which they may not want to do, or they have to just accept the fact that they not they're not speculators. In some cases, they've owned these houses for years. Well, well, speculation tax is a funny name. I mean, uh, I, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you the story of this. You yeah. know, budget day was coming, and I knew, you know, they were sort of, per we're going to do something about speculation. I was like, gosh darn it, I thought they were going to do my plan. You know, I, I, yeah. I put a lot of time and blood, sweat, and tears into the, well, no blood, but, you know, yeah. sweat and tear, sweat. Yeah. Effort. <laughs> tears no came, blood, you know, tears no, blood no sweat, they, no tears. But you know, yeah. you know what I mean. Got it. Yeah, I put it something. A lot of time, yeah. which is, you know, my advisor pointed out to me uh, in grad school. You know, as a, as an economist, as a researcher, you, you have one asset, and that's your time. And I and I put a lot into it. And I thought, ah, you know, I thought this was coming. It's not. Oh well, next. You know, it, because it was a speculation tax. So no, I don't think if you have a second home, you're a speculator. Now we can uh, agree to disagree on this. I think a primary home. Uh, is where the taxes ought to be uh, eased off. With secondary homes, where I think the NDP started off on dicey terrain, and you know I think they've probably gone towards reasonable. Is where should this tax be applied? You know, extra property tax because you want to encourage people to make a living in a city. Nobody, almost nobody, complained to me. Hey, I have a second home in Cole Harbor, and it's not fair that I have to pay. Nobody has said that because I think everybody realizes, you know, city of Vancouver, you might want to make that affordable for people who actually are trying to get one home. Sure. You don't have, you know, sure, there might be a second homelessness problem, but let's deal with the homelessness problem first. Yeah. Uh, but then when you get to a place that's a cabin in the woods, there is no issue of local housing affordability and the economy relies on tourism. So. That, fair enough. I yeah. mean, I could see the validity behind, um, you know, taxing some affluent family or individuals who want to own two residences right. in a place like Vancouver where there is a real affordability issue. I'm not sure there's an affordability issue in Kelowna. I don't know. I'd have to talk Well, Kelowna is an interesting case, I think. I think it's really, you know, 
obviously they rely on the vacation and tourism industry. Yeah. And a tax like this that says we don't want people from outside buying property could affect that economy. On the other hand, you know, I was sort of surprised. I talked to a guy who comes around UBC and uh, buys and sells books. And he was struggling to be able to afford a place uh, in Kelowna. They really okay. are actually yeah. apparently having a living work problem. Now, when we devised the program, it was different in that this was going to be opt-in by municipalities. Sure. And if the municipality yeah. wanted to opt-in, they got to keep the revenue yeah, that's and spend what, it how they wanted That's locally. one of the things I really liked about that your guys' policy is yeah. that you let, you let the decision-making, you set the policy at the provincial level and you make it something that's a provincial tax. Uh, or administered, but yeah. but the municipal government gets to decide, which they have a far more intimate not like that's where a, a town like Bell, a village like Belcara could say we opt out. Yeah. You know this is not the this is not in the best interest of the local residences. Um, and then equally, if you do have a community, and and it also what's nice about it is that the situation that today in BC and these communities that this is applied to um, might not be the same situation a decade from now. Or two decades oh, sure. from now, yeah. and so if you leave it up to the municipal government, then you can kind of have this in place in, indefinitely and allow the local government to really make that decision. I, I mean, personally, I think I think it's a smart idea. Yeah, I, I I like that approach. You can certainly understand if you're a finance minister for a province wanting to say, yeah, that model where the municipality keeps the money is one thing, but we like the model where the province keeps the money. I, yeah, of course. I, of course, you you know, yeah. one understands the incentive. Uh, well, but it's when you do like it the education way. tax, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they call this uh, additional. If your house is valued over $3 million, right. you're now paying, or is it called a school tax? School tax. Oh, school tax. Yeah. But there's no, 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 uh, no, no requirement at all by the provincial government to put that towards schools. It's just going to general revenue. Well, well that, that, that goes to why we called the BC Housing Affordability Fund a fund instead of a tax. And for economists, we generally would say, now, it's complicated because a lot of people don't trust the government. But if you think the government's game is we're trying to make people uh, as well off as possible, but we care about the bottom of the income distribution and we need bridges and schools, there's a balancing act. You want to raise revenue from taxes to do the good stuff, like build bridges and uh, have good schools. But at the same time, you don't want to take too much money from people and you want to be surgical about where you have the taxes so that you don't screw up the economy with taxes. You tax the stuff that you're not creating distortion. You just cough up the money and you're done. Uh, if you believe that, then it really doesn't matter where the revenue from a particular tax goes. So we get this with the carbon tax. You know, oh my God, this is terrible. You're, you're raising gas taxes. And it used to be that the money went and you wrote a check to every household or you wrote some document that says now income taxes are going to be cut by the same amount. Within a budget, ultimately money's fungible. If there's more money coming into the government, uh, there's more capacity for spending. If there's less money coming into the government, there's less capacity for spending. And if you force me to spend all the money from one tax on schools, well, now I've hit how much I want to spend on schools. I'm going to spend less on schools from the other taxes than I would have otherwise. So this targeting has a lot of appeal, you know, but I think that's more of a political than a policy thing. Sure. Well, on that political point, going back to Kelowna, I actually think a big reason why Kelowna was included and kept in uh, versus certain communities like Whistler were excluded is because Kelowna is like the hotbed for the BC Liberal government. I think it's Christy Clark's seat, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, yeah. So yeah. they, I mean, it's, it's, and it, and it has been for many years. And, uh, and, and I don't know if you remember, but the, when they originally went to roll out the speculation tax, they actually had three levels. So they had 
if you were a BC resident, yep. if you were a Canadian but non-BC resident, or if you were a foreigner. And it's interesting because Andrew Weaver was the MLA who basically said, no, no, we have two models. You either are a Canadian yep. or you're non-Canadian. So it, it's for me, it's kind of ironic that the head of the Green Party literally helped save money to the oil workers from Alberta who own a, a vacation yeah. home in Kelowna. I mean, that's just the irony of this, right? I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that was... I got a lot of correspondence on that. Did you? Yeah. You know, I got a, a couple of Vancouver Island or, or the I, Gulf Islands. You know, I don't understand this is a place in the woods. I got a lot of, hey, I'm a, you know, successful guy from Alberta. I, I do vacation in Kelowna. That was the number one. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, you know, well, I'm, it's not, true. I'm not in charge of anything, but I got a lot of correspondence on this. And what was really striking was I got a, a, a lot of Kelowna, a little bit of Gulf Island, and zero Vancouver. Nobody contacted me and said, hey, I have a Pieta tear downtown and a house in West Van. Right. This is baloney. <laughs> and I think the issue is that I, I, I'm sure people are upset by that, and I'm sure that exists. And yeah. I think there is a, a case for, hey, I pay income taxes. The second home ought to be excluded. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's a discussion one can have. But I think people understand there's limited sympathy for, hey, I've got a Pieta tear in, in Coal Harbor and it's not fair I'm paying tax. <laughs> but I think people said, geez, you know, what are you doing? Come on, I'm willing to pay taxes, but I, I don't get Cologne. I think, yeah. you know, the, the sympathy there, you know, I, I can see it more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the decision of, of what communities are included and which ones aren't, in my view, is largely uh, more political than it is a basis on affordability. Because again, mm. you know, why is why is Whistler excluded but Kelowna is not? Why is Belcara included but um, Lions Bay is not? Why is Nanaimo included but not Parksville? You know, so it's 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 interesting to see how these decisions were made. Um, I, one of the things I want to talk to you about, uh, and I'm sure you got lots of lots yeah. of items on your list, but one of the other things that I thought was interesting in this in this these uh, tax changes was the increase on taxes of uh, property transfer tax. Yeah. And I had a good, a good friend of mine, Mike Ramp, was on a show a couple of weeks ago. He's a realtor uh, here in town. Do you know Mike? Well, yeah, yeah. I do. You know, his partner, Sean Anderson, I've yeah. worked with, and oh. uh, he's a Sauter alum. Oh, okay. So, yeah, uh, yeah, Sean's great. Anderson Ramp. Yeah. Great for your housing. There's yeah. a lot of great realtors yeah, in town. Yeah, yeah, no, there, there are lots. There are lots, but, uh, but there are two of them. There are two of them, for sure. And uh, and so what, so we were talking about this this uh, property transfer tax. And we were talking about how basically, you know, as a realtor, generally realtors and my dad was a realtor for mm, years, so I'm yeah. quite familiar with. So realtors generally they don't care about where the prices go; they just want turnover because yes. they they don't make. I mean, you know, sure, granted they make a higher percentage of prices go up, but uh, you know, a smart realtor would much rather have a high turnover market with of falling course. prices than a low turnover market with rising prices. Um, and you know that's one of the interesting things about the agency contract that's a problem because of course you know agents are always saying the seller's such a knucklehead I'm telling him you're not going to get 4 million for that house if you want to sell it, it drop the price down to 3 and a half million unfortunately the seller is aware a the realtor knows better than I do the market so I should listen but on the other hand this guy just wants to get the deal done so I shouldn't sure. listen yeah. and, and and that's attention but yes absolutely turnover yeah. you know uh, volume is the it, game for sure yeah and if you look at the revenue lines of uh, lines of revenue from the provincial government uh, one of the major ones in the last number of years has been revenue from property transfer tax of course and i and ironically in the same sort of same theme the provincial government depends on turnover yes. and and so one of the things that i've been somewhat critical of is this 
they, so they increased the yeah. property transfer tax for values of homes above a certain dollar. I can't remember what it was, but it, in the millions. I, well, right? I think it, it yeah, it, I think Christy Clark did a progressive one, and then part of the additional school tax was even more north of $3 million. Well, the school tax is an annual tax. That's right. No, right? no, but it included an, a bump in the uh, property transfer tax. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, so that's right. So you've got a school tax that applies to two things. One is your annual cost of having a yeah. house over 3 million, but also if that house is sold, then there's a higher percentage. And, and my, <clears throat> sorry, my view is you, you should almost have an incentivized model for these, you know, ultra expensive homes, you know, $5 million involved that says, your property transfer tax is whatever the percentage of 4%. But if you sell your house within 24 months of buying it, it'll only be 2% because then you get turnover. <laughs> and in a way you almost encourage speculation at the highest end because if, and then by, by getting the, the, the cult, the, the rich people yeah. out there to, to speculate and turn over their houses, you're generating more activity, which means you're generating more tax, which accomplishes the goal of putting money back into the, coffers of the government to pay for more affordable housing because the reality is a house that goes from five million to seven million to six million to eight million to four million will never be affordable for anybody yeah. other than the wealthy is that, is that a fair idea? I think there's a lot to what you're saying and the first thing that I, that's very interesting about politics is economists hate property transfer tax generally okay because it is a property tax right if if when you ultimately sell your house, you're going to have to pay a transfer tax on it. Oh, wait a second, you're not going to pay the next buyer is. But either way, that's diminishing the value of your property to you yeah. because the buyer is willing to pay less because of the property transfer tax. So you're whacking the value of a home. Well, that's what a property tax does. So why not do it with a property tax? Because the difference is a property tax, whoever owns the house, is going to pay the tax no matter what. A property transfer tax is just a property tax that also punishes you for selling the house. And, you know, do people sell houses too much, too little? I don't know. You know, it's nice to have a stable community, but as you mentioned, but but it's also nice for people to move for jobs efficiently. So punishing people for moving is a bad idea, A, but B, if there's a property transfer tax, then of course, as you say, the government wants people to keep churning. So that's point one. Point two is you raise a couple of points about, in a way, the top of the market just exists as a tax farm. You know, if you're well off enough to have a $5 million, $8 million house, uh, I think the government's attitude is, is basically, you know, that's great. Thank you for being such a successful person. You're now one less person to worry about. You know, you're going to be fine and you exist to hand over revenue. I, I think that's inevitably what the gover government sees. And, you know, I think ideally you look at that, you say, hey, I've made success and, and, and I'm proud that I am now, you know, a, a farm. You don't want to be victimized. You don't want to be, uh, have the rules changed in the middle of the game. And of course, you don't want to scare people off That's from right. success. Because even if you and want, I, even if you just want to exploit the high ability or the lucky or whatever makes people rich, uh, you don't want to kill the goose that laid the golden egg, even if you don't care about these people at all. And in that sense, the top of the market, in, in the very top, the luxury stuff, you know, uh, that, new neighborhood in West Van, whatever it's called, uh, you, you're not trying to make it affordable with tax policy. You're trying to maximize tax revenue. And to the extent you kill that, that's a dicey proposition. You know, For example, I believe the foreign buyer tax may well, and, I, and people don't know this, I think the foreign buyer tax may have been revenue negative. Oh, 
I totally think. I think so. Uh, it's Wrong your, side of the laugher curve. Yeah. Now, uh, it, you know. Because I, I talked yeah. about this with Mike. Yeah. I, I, I said, you know, if you totally scare off these mm -hmm. foreign investors, especially the ones that are buying the 20 and $30 million homes, because when we talked about this in our, in our podcast, we kind of ran the math on a, just a simple like five or $10 million house. Yes. And the cost for a wealthy individual from mainland China or some other country who would want to bring their money. No, candidly, they're probably bringing it here to kind of harbor it and, and safeguard it because it's a pretty safe place. It's away from yeah. hyperinflation and, you know, yeah. onerous taxes issue or whatever issue. Theft by Theft. the government. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if you scare those people away, because now if you're going to buy, if you're, a, if you're a foreign buyer coming to this market, and you're buying a $10 million house, it's going to cost you somewhere north of $2 million bucks right off the top. Yeah. And now then gonna, every year if, if you don't live there, yeah. Absolutely. Now you're, now you're waiting 15, 20 years just to recover your money. Yeah. But if you made that tax still high enough to make it meaningful, but not so much to discourage these people from coming, I look and go, hey, you know what? The reality is a 10 or $15 million house will never be affordable for anybody. Even if it drops, a $10 million house that drops by 70% in value is still a $3 million house. Yeah. The average Joe is not gonna be able to pay for that. But in the meantime, you can capture a lot. It's like you said, a tax farm. I love that terminology, a tax farm. Yeah. I so mean, so I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot <laughs> by saying this because I live in those kind of areas. I'm not, not to that extreme, but you know, it, it's, uh, you know, and I can appreciate what you're talking about, but I also look at it and go, hey, you know what? These people are coming over this country. They want to spend that kind of money. Let them spend it and tax them enough to keep the cash flow going. Yeah, a couple of remarks on that. It may be that you want to get rid of the bad behavior. So, for example, some people criticize carbon taxes as saying, well, they don't change anybody's behavior. In some way, you say, well, good. It's free money then. You can lower the other taxes. You get the <laughs> revenue without distortion. Uh, but I think with the, with some of these taxes, the goal is to get homes into the hands of locals. So you measure success arguably by no more transactions. Where that becomes hard to swallow, I think what you're saying is at the high end because, come on. Yeah, set a threshold. Yeah. Like say anything above three million bucks or five million right. bucks. Yeah. Let the bad behavior continue at the top end because you're not, they're never going to be affordable anyways. And at least you can generate yeah. tax I, revenue I, from it. I mostly uh, f find a, a lot to agree with in that. Where there, I have one bit of disagreement is on, uh -huh. on, the, on the north of $3 million homes tax, there's an incentive that I don't think any politician would ever cop to, but that I think is a, a terrific one, which is... Uh, one way out of paying a tax to say you got a six million dollar house on a on a quarter acre or whatever chop it up into uh eight million dollar units and okay. now none of them pay any tax and you get more value for your property now the trade-off is if you permit yourself to do that you're permitting your neighbor to and there goes the neighborhood you know you, you lived in beautiful single family homes and now it's townhomes which is not so great but your house is worth a couple million dollars more. So we see that political balance playing out throughout Vancouver, uh, and it's a difficult one. And, you know, I, I believe the underzoning of Vancouver is one of the culprits in the high price of, of housing here. And that does shift the politics because you think, geez, do I really want to go yell against that guy's townhome project at the community meeting? Because if I do, you know, th that's my right as well. And now with the tax, I have an additional incentive. So, you know. Yeah, yeah it, it's 3D chess, but 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 the point remains: uh, you have to be careful in taxation not uh, to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Tom. Well, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your housing affordability fund because there was another feature about that that I want to discuss that I think is really important. A lot of people should hear about because I think it was really smart and it was missed out in this new speculation tax that the provincial government brought in. 
And I'm sure you got lots of other neat things to talk about as well. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back with sure, Tom we'll David off. Pictures. Yeah, thank you. All right, we're back here with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at the Sauter School of Business at UBC, talking about uh, real estate policy in Vancouver and the BC market. Uh, Tom, you guys, we're going back to talking about your uh, affordability, housing affordability fund. And one of the things I liked about that fund that I, I feel like the current policies of the current government have missed is on uh, taxing those people in the province and I always like to call it the sort of the, the, the drug dealer tax uh, because candidly, there was a guy, as I told you about, uh, 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 that lived in our building who was a pretty notorious drug dealer. And sadly, I had to live near this guy. Yeah. Uh, he's not around anymore, which is probably good for everybody. But uh, he, he, he actually had this $4.3 million condo in the building. It was like three, four units combined. And I'm pretty sure the guy never paid the amount of tax he should have paid to pay for this thing in the first place. And I believe your affordability fund would have captured that type of environment where whether it was someone who's a drug dealer or someone's just doing a lot of business under the table or just not paying what I've described, paying their fair share of taxes to be able to afford that kind of asset. Is that, is that fair that your policy was going to address something like that? Oh, yeah, very much so. So it had nothing to do with what your passport says. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, you had one address from which you pay your income tax. So when you pay your income tax, from which address are you paying that? If that's the primary residence, that's where you live to work, you get to declare all the income tax you pay as a dollar for dollar credit against this bump in property tax. Right. So unless you've lived in the property a long time, we just said, because long-term residents, you've been there for 10 years, the market's gone up. You know, you bought based on a $30,000 income that just isn't going to support the, the new property tax. We gave you a pass for long-term residency. Sure. Seniors just off the hook, got to do it. Uh, but otherwise, there's only two ways you're out of the tax. Number one, this is where you live and work, and you get credits for income tax you actually pay. So undeclared drug income, it wouldn't work. Uh, right. The other one would be uh, rental income. And probably, probably declared drug income probably wouldn't, wouldn't work for you either. <laughs> well, that would get, well, that's, that's the beauty, of course. It, it, it would, you know, discourage naughty behavior. It would encourage people starting to claim sweet income, for example, which is another one. Right. Uh, because the other way you get a credit is gross rental income that you declare to CRA. Sure. And it had to be gross. We wanted to do net. But the problem is net rent divided by price could be less than property tax after you take out mortgage and depreciation and what and property taxes. So uh, it had to be gross. Uh, but it, but then again, you encourage people now to be honest about their sources of income. And if you're uh, and if it is a case of a satellite family from overseas, as I understand it, there's some ambiguity. If I work in uh, Mexico City and my family is here in Vancouver. Do I have to declare myself a resident for tax purposes of Canada? My understanding is that's gray area, and I would now have an incentive to go over the line uh, and start paying that tax. Of course, I'd also have an incentive to get out of the property, but I'd have an incentive to start declaring income tax here. And of course, that's a good thing for uh, people who live here. And would that would that policy that you had uh, uh, thinking about you're not taxed based on your passport, but based based on the taxes you pay? Let's take a scenario where let's say you are a foreigner, you own a real nice house in Vancouver, but you also have built a business in Vancouver. And while you may not personally pay income tax in Vancouver because it's not your primary residence, um, you employ 15 or 20 people and your company 
pays a lot of taxes. Would it have addressed that in any any way? No. No. Okay. <laughs> no, you'd be yeah. on the hook if you're not declaring it. In, it. The way we wrote it, you wouldn't. But of course, uh, you know, exactly how you should treat corporations would be an implementation question. And I think you're mm-hmm. raising a, a valid point. If you have a lot of investments here, maybe you ought to get credit for that as well, even if it sure. is a pied a terre. Yeah. I just like the theme or the thought the thought that look if you're paying taxes in this country whether you're a resident or not you're you're adding to the tax roll for the government to be able to afford things like supporting uh, affordable homes and uh, low-income housing then then you shouldn't be penalized in addition and then equally if you are a local you didn't you you're born and raised here but you're skirting the system by one means or another now you're gonna pay if you're gonna if to be, be able to, to afford to buy a nice place with no declared income. Well, another one uh, would be, and this is a politically interesting one, because mm-hmm. I think there's more sympathy for this uh, than you might think, which is you have a successful parent and uh, they leave you enough money or gift you while they're alive to give you the down payment and help with the mortgage. And you're a yachtsman. Or, you know, a uh, poet who, you know, doesn't, you know, ever get the the poems published. But, you know, that's what you do with your time. Again, you'd be subject to that tax as well. Your primary residence, you're not paying tax enough to support that purchase. You live in a fancy home. Yeah. I don't know politically how that would play. Uh, uh, you know, if you look in the U.S. where we have estate taxes, here we don't. You know, in the U.S. they've managed to turn the, the estate tax into a tax on poor, struggling farmers, which it is absolutely not. But people really don't like the idea of estate tax. Other people might think, geez, you inherited money and you live in a fancy house. You know, that, that, well, I don't see why you shouldn't pay extra tax. Uh, you know, but, that's, uh, but that would be another case, drug yeah. dealer, <laughs> uh, heir to, uh, to a fortune. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a, a lot of Canadian uses potentially. Yeah, sure. Now you've wrote, written a few pieces, and we'll pull this up on on um, uh, on the screen here. That uh, a couple of uh, sort of comments that you've got you want to d- discuss on uh, the title of this. Some interventions that we might expect with respect to this yeah. is to do with the speculation tax. Yeah. So if we look at uh, the bullet points on the first page, and then we can look at a picture together. You know, for those of you looking at video, there's been a lot of interventions into the market. And, you know, some people want to say it's all the foreign buyer tax. That's what solved the problem. Some people want to say, no, 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 you had to have the speculation tax or it's the empty homes tax in Vancouver. Uh, Other people say these taxes have been totally ineffective. The only thing that mattered was the stress test. It's, it's a little bit hard to disentangle. The stress test for mortgages. The stress test, yeah. Let's yeah. be clear about what that was. There was stress test one and stress test two. Okay. In late 2016, effective 2017, the Fed said if you're going to take north of uh, 80% LTV, so your mortgage, if it's through one of the uh, Fed, uh, regulated banks, has to carry mortgage insurance. If we're going to give you mortgage insurance, you have to qualify and just to, to be make clear, payments. this is CMHC mortgage insurance. CMHC yeah. or Genworth can compete with them, but right. the, the standard product that has to be purchased by the bank if they're going to lend to you more than 80% of the property value. Uh, if that's going to be issued, you have to qualify not at today's low interest rates, but if rates rise by 2%, you still have to be not paying more than 30 32% of your income. Uh, and, and so if you're tr- stressed by higher interest rates, can you still make the payments? People thought that would have a big impact. I was at a, at a housing conference, and everybody was like, oh, boy, this is going to be a killer. And from 2016 to 2017, if you pull, go to the chart, what you'll see is uh, I've got – it's a little tough to read, 
but uh, you see a yellow line, that's the price of single-family homes. The blue and green lines are the average price and the price of condos. And after mid-2016, after that giant spike in the yellow, which happens to be when the foreign buyer tax was bought in, that's it for the growth in single-family. It treaded water for a while, fell right after the tax bopped up, but it hasn't seen any more growth. And as everybody knows, it's starting to tick down. Condos went nuts after foreign buyer tax. They're up about 30%, 20 30% from where they were uh, by mid-2018 relative to foreign buyer tax. Why is that? Well, that's a great question. And it's an even better question when you ask uh, the stress test. Stress test one uh, seems to have had... No- you know, if it, maybe it had an effect, maybe the prices would have been up 50%, but it's awfully hard to look at that picture with the spike in condo after 2016 and say, you know, great work with the uh, stress test. Things have calmed down starting around mid-2018 in the condo market, and that's when stress test two, which was announced in late 2017, started to bite because, you know, people still qualify uh, use mortgages that qualified under the old rules. But late 2017, stress test two comes in, and that's everything the banks do. That's uh, under 80%, whatever. I think what happened, probably why stress test one didn't work, if I had to point a finger, because there were a lot of first-time buyers in the market influencing the market, and I'll show you some evidence for that. Uh, I think they were switching to 20% down loans. But the question is, well, how? I mean, you know, first-time buyer, that's a heavy lift. Sure. I mean, a million-dollar condo, that's 200 k And I think we both know, you know, when you're around the age of first-time buyer, assembling 200 k that's, that's... That's a big gas. That's yeah. not everybody. No. You know, there's a lot of very skilled, hard-working Even people. Even with mom and dad throwing of, 50 even, or 100 yeah, grand yeah, yeah, in. You, like, you inherit something, you still... Uh, yeah, that's that's, that's a, a heavy number. lift. So how were so many people all of a sudden able to acquire that down payment? I think it was second loans. And, you know, the banks, okay. how they're supposed to look at second loans, I think there's some ambiguity. I think there's some ambiguity in the behavior. So when they extended it to all loans, there was no longer the incentive. You couldn't get around this by right. adding more debt on. And I think the banks were sort of chastised to not do that. But if you look at the bottom picture, what you see is you ask, how did prices jump so high? little hard to tell, but there's a blue line that spikes around two th- peaks, I should say, not spikes around 2016, just when prices do. You see that thin mm-hmm. blue line? Yeah. That plummets. And what that picture is... What is the blue line? The blue line is... The green line is like for a typical condo, how have prices been moving? Yeah. The blue line is how much of a kicker do you get for being higher quality? Better location, more square feet, newer building. Okay. And what we see is when the foreign buyer tax came in around mid-2016, there was a big reward to quality for whatever reason. Okay. The market liked quality. You got a big premium for better product. By late 2018, we were at like an all-time low, at least since 2015, in the premium for quality. Interesting. So that suggests to me that prior to 2016, it was the high end of the market driving the train. And then, you know, uh, we had a bunch of tax interventions that were unfriendly to the top. Empty homes, speculation. You know, the empty homes are concentrated in Call Harbor and Shaughnessy, so that probably hits the top of the market more. Uh, speculation tax, not sure. We don't have any data on who's paying that, but you might yeah. again think that's a little top heavy. Stress test two, you would think would be bottom heavy. So the market was probably being driven by those first time buyers, which is what you see with the decline in the blue. When that starts to kick in, now everything's slow. Okay. Now, the other thing that's been happening that I think is just going to be absolutely fascinating to watch, I'd be interested in your thoughts, yeah. is what I like to call the uh, looming condo inventory 
Sabaka Spectacle or Dog Show or <laughs> SS could be the initials for another, you know, something show. Uh, you know, we started building a lot of condos, not surprisingly, when you saw those rising prices. The incentive to turn dirt into building is, is bigger than it ever was starting, yeah. you know, 16 to 18. And, and it happened. A lot of buildings getting built, city councils collecting a lot of community amenity contributions, doing zoning for dollars. That product only recently started hitting the market, and I don't think we've hit the peak of product hitting the market. Now, what's interesting about the condo run-up is you wonder if there weren't people looking to get out of foreign buyer tax, whatever, by buying pre-sale units. Because a pre-sale purchase is not taxed under foreign buyer, doesn't pay the school tax anything until the building's complete. So if I'm somebody who wants to So take, this is an opportunity to speculate. You have is to believe your, it. Now, yeah. the development community and and all the data, you know, these finished buildings, it's not like we're seeing uh, big spikes in foreign buyer tax. So it's a thought. I, I don't have any good data on this, but how could it be that you put you have lots of people apparently up to 17% of the market in mid-2016 saying, you know, I'm sick of this guy over here, this dictator stealing my money. I'm going to buy a house in West Van. Then you have the pre-sale market explode. You have to think some of that was those people who didn't want to pay foreign buyer tax but did want exposure to the Vancouver real estate market. Why not buy in a pre-sale, wait two years, you're exposed to the market for two years, Sure. assign your pre-sale unit to somebody else, maybe totally tax-free. You know, yeah. if I'm in if I'm in uh, Zurich, do I really have to pay, who, who do I have to pay tax uh, on the pre-sale to? I think the rules have been tightened now, you would have to pay. Uh, but the, t the tax is limited, and now I can roll over my position again, and I'll never pay the foreign buyer tax. Yeah, because there's no withholding tax when you sell. Yeah. Well, yeah. I there were I don't know what they're doing now. I think it's yeah. harder to get away from a capital gain. Should you be so blessed as to have a capital gain? Yeah. Uh, but at the beginning, in 2016, I don't think there was any such thing. So yeah. you had to think that game was getting played. But but the music stops eventually. In a period where there's a lot of pre-sale activity, some people say, well, those rising prices for pre-sale units just make everything more expensive because you know the locals can only buy existing product. They're chased out of the uh, pre-sale. But when the pre-sales get finished and those net buyers become net sellers, what happens? Sure. And I, and I think we're only starting to see that now. I don't know this, this so will this happen. this could be very interesting. Well, that's the, to, the condo inventory, yeah. not so great show that I think could be a, a very interesting story for the next couple of years. N not a certainty. I think a lot of people probably bought these things hoping to be landlords. So yeah. we'll see a bit of rent rental inventory come on. Yeah. And, you know, rents will continue to slow down, which is great. Uh, it might be these were kids living in their parents' basements. They're going to be new demand. Uh, they might be immigrants who are, who didn't have a housing unit before. So it's certainly a, a world in which all this condo inventory stays absorbed. It was all pre-sold, yeah. and it stays absorbed. Maybe. But, but I think there's another world in which we yeah. get a bunch of rental product on, but we also see a lot of uh, people trying to get out uh, prior to completion. So it'll be very interesting to watch that space. It will be interesting. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, bo bottom line is once, once the property is completed, now the these taxes start to kick in. Well, and, and, and that's and where there's the cost of carrying it. I mean, when you're, you know, there's cost of carrying real estate regardless, but you have these additional costs that really have to be factored in once you, once the place can be occupied. Well, that's right. And especially in Vancouver. And, and then the question is, if somebody from overseas wants to overpay massively and pay 3000 bucks a square foot 
for a, a unit that's going to wind up being dark 500 square feet with peeling laminate and sell for a million dollars once it's finished, is that a bad thing? I, what's the loss? Essentially, they're acting as financiers for development. They're sure. on the supply side, and they never use the if they never use the completed building, and they're not going to let it sit empty with the empty homes tax. Uh, why is this something we despise? And yet, if if you did a survey of like, is it a good thing if somebody from outside invests in a pre-sale unit with the sole intention of flipping it prior to completion? You know, that ruthlessness. Or, that an economist, uh, an experienced business guy has that says, look, let's just look at what the bottom line impact it, is. I think people are disgusted by that. And so if, they the, are, imp if the impact of all these new completions is lower prices, I don't think there will be any appreciation that all this con condo construction financed possibly by flippers. And, and there's domestic flippers too. A lot of people sure. buy into these units just for the speculative value. It's not a bad thing to speculate in construction. That's what developers do and that's what effectively lenders do. Yeah, absolutely. But for whatever... And the other side of that is pre-sale. I mean, do you really think a first-time buyer ought to get into the market by buying a pre-sale building where they have no idea what the quality is going to be when it's complete? You're reading a contract with a gun to your head that you don't understand. I, I don't think that's a great way for people to get into the market. I think that is a market for sharks and uh, as long as they're out once the building's finished. Yeah. You know. Those are some great points, Tom. And, you know, one of the things that I know Andrew Weaver, I brought his name up mm -hmm. earlier, but he's been quite vocal about is he actually wants to ban foreign ownership altogether yeah. in, in BC. Uh, he keeps using the reference that uh, New Zealand has done this. Yeah. And I, I think there's some there could be very serious unintended consequences from this, uh, because when you discourage a complete ban, like a complete ban by foreigners, you're you're losing out on some potential tax revenue that really will have no that tax revenue today has really no impact on the affordability uh, issue. So then this 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 uh, example you just gave I think is a good example of that. Yeah, you know, there's foreign and there's foreign. So first of all, Andrew Weaver's a brilliant guy. We've yeah. both met him, yeah. and uh, he's an yeah, extremely like, accomplished like scientist. He's a, yeah. Brilliant guy, and and he's not a. I don't racist. agree with everything I, he says, but I agree with most he says. But he's doing you know, some things like that that I just think I I don't know. I question whether that's a good call. Well, well, the use of foreign, I'm going to say it, you know, I don't think it's racist, but what I always say is if I was a racist, I would love a foreign buyer tax or a foreign <laughs> buyer ban. And it makes me uncomfortable to use uh, nationality just yeah. at the level of I just don't think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. That said, there's an economic issue as well, which is, I mean, we're, I think the last time I looked at the foreign buyer tax data, and it's been a while, it was only like 2% of the market. Going from 2% to 0% of the market is not going to have a giant impact on affordability, especially to the extent that 2% no. is concentrated at the high end. But it could have a, an, an adverse impact on taxes. And then you ask yourself, how bad is it if some guy uh, from uh, Texas wants to have a place in Cole Harbor? Yeah, they are taking a, a unit out of, the, out of supply in an area with scarce supply, and that, that, that is a cost, and there should be a tax. But if but they're going to pay a hundred grand a year in taxes all in, right? It's not a hundred thousand dollars bad because twenty grand a year gets you an affordability rental in the suburbs or twenty five exactly. grand. So a hundred grand, you're housing four families at the cost of one unit. There is a point at which the tax is great enough that this is a desirable rather than an undesirable thing. So I think a ban a, let, let's not get hung up on nationality for ethics' sakes. Two, it's not going to have much impact on prices. Three, let's embrace foreign investment. And the other side, of course, is I don't think most people 
even prior to the speculation tax aimed to, to leave the units empty. I think some did. And the speculation tax now, what the speculation tax says is, well, you go ahead and buy that unit, Mr. Texan, but uh, you're going to have to rent it out. What's the harm in that? You know, we like landlords. We like If uh, a Canadian uh, real estate investment trust buys apartments or builds apartments, we think that's great. It's not very different if somebody from overseas buys a unit to rent it out, sure. which with the empty homes and speculation tax is going to be, uh, you'd have to think, the end result, unless they want to cough up thousands of dollars in taxes. Absolutely. Yeah. These are great. This is what I love. I'm so glad you came on this on the show, Tom. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the other... Uh, issues. Sure. Um, one of the things that's come up recently, and I don't know if we can switch gears here to the federal policy, but one of the things that the the liberal government has just announced in their latest budget is they want to help first time home buyers now with this uh, equity component. This uh, I think they're up to ten percent of the value yeah. of the house or something like that. F- five for existing units, ten for new. Yeah. Can you talk about this a little bit at all? Sure. Yeah. You know. I was very critical when the last uh, provincial government put in the BC Home Partnership Program. That was the the sort of second mortgage program, effectively. So if you're going to get an insured loan these days, and I think they shut it down almost directly. Well, the the best thing about it was nobody took it up. And the reason, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there is an argument, by the way. And, 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 And let me take a big picture here, if I might, for a moment. Yeah. So we're in a market where... R minus G is spectacularly low. What do I mean by R minus G? Take some appropriate rate of return, start with the riskless rate. So a 10-year uh, government of Canada bond is paying, what, 169 today, 1.7? Yeah, maybe Yeah, maybe like, yeah, he's yeah. Sub, it's, it's sub two for well, sure. Well like, sub two. Yeah. Rents are not allowed. The government is so worried about rising rents and I think this was a mistake, they capped growth instead of at 4% at 2%. Yeah, it's terrible. Because they think the market's growing at more than 2%. I think They're totally discouraging people from wanting to be landlords. You know, rent control is not something economists tend to like. I think what we had before with 2% above CPI was probably pretty workable. Yeah. So... But going from four to two, I just don't see the case that you can't pay a 2% real bump in rents to, that people ought to be protected from that, especially on new product. But we'll put that yeah. aside for the moment. We'll come back to that, though, because yeah. you're, you're originally from New York. I am. And, and, and doesn't New York have some pretty serious rent controls? It does, but it hasn't applied generally to new units. So, okay. for example, you know, rents are falling in New York because of new supply where, where new units are exempted. You're protecting people in, in old existing buildings under the old rules. I see. You know, I, I think rent control in New York actually gets a bad rap. I was actually named as an undergrad the worst article of the year by the, the right-wing uh, <laughs> student newspaper. I wrote something at the time I was further left than I am today. Uh, saying, you know, this economics textbook is totally baloney because of their treatment of rent control, which was, it was too simplistic because they treat it as a price ceiling and it, when you, you have to embrace nuance when you, when you think about policy. We're going to come back in a minute with Tom Davidoff. One of the things I want to talk, because you are from New York and an American, mm-hmm. and uh, we went through the financial crisis, the housing crisis, yeah. the United States was really hit hard. Canada was a little bit, but didn't experience the same kind of uh, real estate demise that the U.S. saw. Um, and there's a lot of people who, you know, believe that it's because of these stricter rules we have in Canada. But I'd love to get your thoughts on, mm. you know, are we at risk here in Canada of seeing something like this happen? So we're going to come back with Tom Davidoff in a minute, and we'll talk about that. Fantastic. Thanks. Okay, we're back here with Tom Davidoff. Tom, we're going to uh, t- switch gears for a minute yeah. and talk about the financial crisis that occurred in 2008, 2009. 
and this massive crash of real estate prices in the United States. We didn't see it so badly in Canada. Um, and just curious to know, what are your thoughts? Do you think that we could be subject to something like this in Canada near term or at some point in the future? Well, it's interesting. So the U.S., uh, first of all, I, I, now we have a generation below us who, who don't didn't experience. You know, it used to be I teach. Well, you remember the U.S. housing crisis. My undergrads who are twenty today yeah. were well, uh, you know old. eight years old in two thousand seven. Right. Uh, so, time goes fast, huh? Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like just yesterday, but you know, obviously this is a big moment in our lives. And you know, just to give the broad brush of it. You had this expansion in non-prime lending in the U.S. In Canada, the banks dominate the scene, but everybody knows there's these other lenders out there, and they're growing with the stress test, who will charge higher interest rates for people who can't get a so-called conforming loan. Uh, and, and that got very big in the States. It got to be you know, not 10% of the market, 50% of the market uh, was non-prime. If you look at where- Was it, it really 50%? Yeah. Oh. And if you look at where prices boomed and busted, a lot of observers missed this because people saw San Francisco and Boston. They were the first markets to go. And you say, yeah, yeah it's like Vancouver. It's hard to build. Everybody wants to live there. Yeah. And so you're going to get a boom, but you might get a bust. The big boom and bust, the crazy thing, was in over easily supplied markets, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Modesto, California, which is California, but not not the, the part people love. And you know, good good produce, but you know, <laughs> not the same supply constraints. And so it was minority neighborhoods, unfortunately, typically, where people had been locked out of home ownership, both by bias from banks and just difficulty assembling a down payment because of the unfortunate correlation in the states between wealth, income, and uh, you know, ethnic background. And you had these booms fed by subprime lending where people who had not been able to buy before got into the market. And that first-time buyer, people who couldn't get in and now can, you know, a colleague of mine, Francois Talomagne and Sven Rady, uh, years ago, uh, when I was in grad school, they um, they developed a model that points out what every realtor knows that 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 first time buyer is a big part of movements in prices. When they have access to credit, that can really move things. Even though a lot of supply was coming on, well, you're building plenty of houses for people who really can't afford these loans eventually things are going to go wrong. And they did. Prices fell below construction costs instead of twice construction costs. You had a lot of people not able to make the payments on their mortgage or strategically default, whatever it was. And uh, the problem was, you know, that drop in housing prices would have been manageable in an economy like the U.S. You know, housing's not everything, and it wasn't by any means every house. So that was okay. You know, that's like billions of dollars lost, which is fine. Not great, but fine. Uh, what was not fine was the banks, uh, important financial institutions, had these derivative securities on the uh, mortgage loans. So, you know, you would take the loans and stratify uh, order of payments. You'd take the low payments. You'd try to squeeze some triple A out of even the, the junky stuff by tranching that. Everybody's seen the big short. Yeah. The, the balance sheets of banks, people, they were very opaque. You might want to look at, what was it, Repo 101? You ever, Repo 105. Have you heard of this? No. Okay, so it wasn't Lehman. It was one of the banks that eventually went bad. It might have been Lehman. It was a lot like what Enron would do. At the end of the quarter, they would do a repurchase agreement with their junkie assets where they would borrow against them. And if you borrowed 105% loan to value, Repo 105, that counted as a sale. So you no longer owned the asset, but you'd borrowed it 105%. The reporting period's done. Nobody knows it's on your books. The first day of the next reporting period, uh, you know, you, you buy the stuff back. Back, yeah. You hope. 
Yeah. And so <laughs> you hide it you hide it from your balance sheet, even yeah. though it's like multiplicative risk. It's called window dressing. Yeah. yeah. That's what they call it. I mean, I, I see it in yeah. my own work. It's, so, it's, so people didn't understand the securities and they didn't understand banks' exposures to them and stuff froze up. So banks could no longer, you know, I guess pass uh, the tests required to keep being operational. People didn't trust counterparties in, in, in markets. And so the economy just... Psh, you know, really seized up for a, a while. Yeah. And housing, which is a big part of the economy, was dead. Of course, you know, you were overbuilt. There wasn't going to be construction. You know, Canada, do we have that problem potentially? I mean, one thing you look at is where are the risky loans? And there were ninja loans to people from overseas for high value properties. You know, I'm guessing the banks are somewhat exposed to those. I don't think it's probably a big part of them. Uh, home builders, you know, people may be in the midst of uh, stuff that's pre-sold, but the pre-sales could fall apart. Is that a lot for the lenders enough to really have a macro consequence? You know, Vancouver's housing market going bad is not enough to drag down Canada. It's terrible for Vancouver, yeah. but but a really just giant macro disaster. The drive to qualify stuff, maybe you do worry about. Maybe these insured loans, you know, most of the losses to the government, CMHC, but, you know, you need to tell a story where the banks themselves get into trouble. But is, uh, but I talked about that condo scenario. Uh, I could believe you're going to have, you know, people were paying 125% of market to buy into pre-sale buildings. And if the market falls 30%, you have people yeah. down 40, 50% with 20% yeah. down payments who can't get loans, want to get out. There's a world in which we have quite a disaster here. Macro consequences uh, Not know, likely. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about where stuff gets hidden on balance sheets, but my suspicion is that's not as likely, but we'll see. It seems like a lot of these uh, mortgage rules that have been just coming out year after year has probably helped address yeah. this issue. I mean, uh, on one hand, as we were talking offline for a moment, uh, I'm in one hand, I'm I'm a, I'm very much a, almost like a libertarian. I'm not a big fan of big government. I like to I love free market, but at the same time, I believe like you know there is a value of having government implement these kind of rules to stabilize a society, so we don't go into complete yeah. uh, anarchy. Well, you know, the government pr provides a uh, CMHC is a government entity. I mean, if yeah. if, if non CMHC insured high loan to value loans are such a great idea, the the private market is free to go and make those loans. Sure. So yeah. the government saying, hey, the taxpayers on the hook. We want to dial back. I, I don't have a big problem with that. Now, one last point to look at as an yeah. indicator is Genworth stock because okay. CMHC is on the hook for defaults, but they're a crown corporation. Yeah. So it's hard to know what the market makes of that business. Yeah. Except Genworth is a publicly traded company that's in the same business. Sure. And what I always found interesting is look at their price earnings ratio. That's the New York Stock Exchange. So you want a MIC, it's a TSE stock. M -I -T -I yeah, M -I yeah, there you go. TSE, sorry. TSX, yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's look at their price earnings. What are they? 8.35. I think their U.S. counterparts, Radian and Magic, are more like 14%. Okay. So it's it's been funny to watch. And Genworth's been there all through the cycle. Like people yeah, paying. long time. You know, you're buying a condo in Vancouver and the price to earnings is like 50, right? Your net, your net income uh, divided by price is 2%. Here it's 8%. Yeah. What's up with that? On yeah. the one hand, people love the real estate market. On the other hand, Genworth hasn't been that hot. It hasn't suffered that much recently. You know, if that PE gets like to zero, that's the indicator that people think this market's screwed. But what's interesting about the stress test is it may be bad for property values, but the loans 
that uh, Genworth has been insuring in CMHC the last couple of years. People pointed this out to me. They're really high quality yeah, loans because people have to have to satisfy the stress test. Yeah. So the likelihood of them getting really clobbered, uh, you know, they're making fairly safe loans, and, and and the other stuff has two years of appreciation behind it. So there'd have to be a real catastrophe before we we see losses to them. Yeah. The feedback I get from a lot of the treasury people that I work with on a day to day basis is that uh, the the one difficulty with all these new regulations is there's just a lot less CMHC insured mortgages yes. to 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 finance to fund in the first place and it's a real challenge that the, i think it's one of the reasons why even though we've seen a rise in interest rates canadian bank stock prices haven't really done that well no. normally they you know when rates are going up they skyrocket especially uh in you you would have thought so in the last couple of a uh, couple of years i mean they've like done they've done well but uh, they haven't done fa- fantastic and one of the things one of the things i keep hearing is that the the pool of securitization. So this is the, the 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 bundling, like you described earlier, the bundling of CMHC insured yeah. mortgages to sell off into the bond market, and basically it's a way of the banks of funding their capital to uh, funding their balance sheet. Well, to, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. They, they transform risky mortgages into cash-like securities. That's it's right. Just a, a great business for them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. But there's a lot less because first of all, to get a CMHC insured mortgage, if your house value or your condo value exceeds a million bucks it immediately is disqualified. Right. Well, that pretty much takes out all of Vancouver <laughs> and all of Toronto. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. a big part of the market. Um, I want to just circle back to yeah. kind of wrap this up. I want to talk about another criticism, not criticism, I could say, but uh, a sort of a t- hot topic right yeah. now. I guess I could call it a criticism by the BC Liberal government. Um, although I'd argue that anything that they are looking for right now is a way of just trying to throw mud at the ND- BC NDP. Yeah, they're the opposition. They're that's the opposition. What that's what they're supposed to do. That's their job. But they're really critical right now of the fact that the BC NDP, uh, it, through this uh, uh, sort of re- most recent legislation, is they're now basically going to dive into beneficial ownership mm. and requiring to get a lot of information around taxes and social insurance number and whatnot for every single home owned in British Columbia. Uh, and again, going back to that, you know, my, my constant challenge between being a guy who loves free market and, and small government combined with making sure we have good policies. In order to have good policies, you have to have good data. Yeah. And in, and so if you look at your affordability, housing affordability fund, in order to ever implement that in, in verbatim, you need to know what people have paid in taxes and what they are paying in taxes. In order to do that, you have to have this data. You have any thoughts about the way in which the provincial government today is now approaching this and trying to go into and saying, okay, we, you know, we're, we, are, we don't have an alternative agenda here. We are truly just wanting to know who won't, I mean, that's what they yeah. state. And of course, the liberals are saying, no, no, there's some, some other hidden agenda here. But we want to know, you know, who owns this property? Any thoughts on that? It's an interesting question. I, off the top of my head, the uh-huh. idea that, oh, my God, the government's going to have your social insurance number. I think they already have it. The federal does. <laughs> the yeah. feds do. The province, I don't know if the Ministry yeah. of Finance knows my SIN. Yeah. I, I just don't. I, I, I honestly don't know. Uh well, you don't. You see, you don't file a BC tax return. You file a, yeah. a, fe, a yeah, federal. Yeah, the finance tax. ministry gets the money. Uh, they the, get the, the money, share. but they don't. They don't. Do they not get all see the, the return? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I don't, not. I don't know either. Yeah, uh, the beneficial ownership registry, I think, has a lot going for it. Um, I do too. A tax avoidance being the big one. You know, how do you have a foreign buyer tax without it? Here's here's a game I yeah. don't understand well, this, how people haven't played, which is, uh, I'm a realtor. I don't, if, if, if you're from, uh, you know, Taiwan and you want to buy a place in Vancouver, what I can't do is form a corporation that I know you're going to buy 
right? The corporation now owns the property. I sell you the corporation. That's tax ev evasion. I'm in trouble. However, if I don't know who you are, uh, but I think people like you guys are going to be foreign buyers for a property. If I'm a realtor, I think I can uh, form a numbered corporation, buy the property, hold it for a little while, and then look to flip to whoever, sell the corporation, that's not a property transfer, and I'm out of the foreign buyer tax in that game. Absolutely. So if you don't have beneficial ownership, I don't see how you can enforce foreign buyer tax. Speculation tax, you have to show a tax return. Could you black out your SIN? I don't know if th that would be enforceable otherwise. You know, so certainly in the case of an audit, I think eventually the SIN is going to have to come up. I, I respect privacy concerns. I've switched from uh, Android to an iPhone because <laughs> I don't want Google. You know, I don't, I don't have any specific concern, but I just, you know, I'm not sure I want them to see everything I do. So I, I, I understand the concern. Uh, I, I don't know how, just like you say, there, there is a tension. I don't know how you do the enforcement without the SIN eventually coming up. And I think this beneficial ownership registry, you know, is terrific. I guess well, one I think, option, I think, though, yeah. I, I should say is under any regime, maybe you always preserve the, I'm going to pay the tax because I want the privacy. Here's my numbered corp. I'm not going to sure. tell you who owns That's it. That's a great solution. Yeah. That's just yeah. simple. Yeah. That's yeah. simple. And again, you just come up with a dollar figure where the government says, all right, you know, this property's off the market, we think, and, and, and there's a cost to that, but, there, but, but there's a number. Sure. Although then you get to money laundering and maybe you're murdering hey, people with yeah, drugs. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe, but at least if you're money laundering or you're a drug dealer and you're paying their taxes, at least you're getting, you know, now at least you're <laughs> contributing member of society in a positive way as opposed to just a negative way. You know, I think I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to start saying I'm in the realm of, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, yeah. know. Well, I do, I do like, here's the thing about uh, beneficial ownership. Look, I work in the financial markets and, and for me to have a regular, you know, plain vanilla Canadian who's born and raised in this country, open up an education account. I have short of getting a blood sample. Yeah. I, I mean, it's unbelievable the amount oh, of information sure. I have to get yet in real estate. There's virtually no AML, anti-money laundering requirements at all. There's almost no terrorist yeah. financing requirements at all. It's, it's, it's mind blowing to me. And, and so to me, I support the idea of at a minimum beneficial ownership. Also because, look, I live in, an air, in a neighborhood over in West Point Gray that has a lot of these empty homes. Because I yeah. walk around, I see them. The yeah. lights are never on. And, and while they may never be affordable homes, I do believe that you know, taxing these homes is a good idea because I'm pretty sure if they're empty and they're owned by foreign buy yeah. buyers, they're probably not contributing to the, to the tax right. system in, in Canada and BC. Uh, and you, but the thing is, you don't know until you have a bit. So like when I've heard people for years saying, well, the reason the prices have risen so much in Vancouver is because of all the foreign buyers. I could make the argument, a very strong argument, well, actually it's because of cheap credit. Because we go back to that graph we were talking about, the, the cost of borrowing money has been so cheap for so long. I mean, it's not Vancouver's not the only market. The prices have risen, no. right? And it isn't. And it and there isn't. I mean, prices have risen in many communities, many of which don't have a lot of foreign owners. Um, and so, until you know the data, you can't really make a, a solid claim. Uh, yeah, you know that was going back. That was really uh, part of the idea was. Hey, everybody's saying it's it's those guys from overseas. Maybe. Well, you know, other people said, no, it's not at all. 
well, let's let's get some data and figure this out. So, uh, yeah, the, the role of people not making a living in the homes, you won't know until you collect the data. And in fact, as I, you know, as I go back to what our original document said, we said, hey, this is an important side benefit is we're going to get an idea of the magnitude. If you're not getting any revenue out of this, everybody turns out is an owner occupier paying income tax or is a landlord. Yeah, you know, you go, you move on to the next policy, probably on the supply side. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, you're associate professor at uh, the Sauter School of Business at UBC. Yep. Uh, you're on social media. What is your What is your Twitter handle? Uh, at Tom Davidoff. At Tom Davidoff. At Tom Davidoff, or yeah. you can find uh, some of my research at blogs.ubc.ca/davidoff. Okay, and Davidoff spelled. Like D- the cigars, like, like David then off. D a v i d o f f. Okay. Do you like cigars? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. And I, I might be related. I know the guys, uh, I, I think he might even be Odessa, but he's definitely Ukrainian, which is where the uh, Davidoffs have, were, were from at, at some point way back. But yeah. I haven't seen a dime of royalties. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. Well, you, there's your Twitter handle there, uh, Tom Davidoff. And uh, this looks like there's a link to your, your blogs on there as well. So that's yeah. great. Tom, it's been great having you on the show today. A real treat. I'd, yeah, I'd love to have you come back maybe in the fall to uh, to do another recap and talk about, I'm sure there'll be m- some changes that we would want to discuss. Absolutely. Thanks for coming in today. Real it's been pleasure. Great, Thank great you. to have you here. Thanks, Tom. Welcome to Coastal Front. Join us each week as we sit down with the movers and shakers of Vancouver to discuss stories of business, politics, accomplishment, and failure. Our aim is to keep you dialed into what matters most in our city. Now, here's your host, Andrew Johns.